This part of the program we usually reserve for obituaries, and we probably should note, I think, the passing of former Ohio Senator Howard Metzenbaum, who died at age 90 last week. Ted Kennedy called him the conscience of the Senate, but he did have some detractors, including Republican Ted Stevens of Alaska, who once called Metzenbaum a pain in the ass. The Almanac of American Politics, which is usually known for its temperate tone, said of Metzenbaum, he was prickly, persistent, and at times irritating. Speaking in his own defense, Headline Howard was so noted because he was, uh, well, he was outspoken and had a publicity-seeking style, said Metzenbaum, uh, well, sometimes in order to be effective, you have to be an SOB. Metzenbaum was the son of a first-generation American. He reportedly paid his way through college and law school by renting bicycles, selling chrysanthemums, and ferrying friends to the racetrack. He later opened the first commercial parking lot at a Cleveland airport, which he grew into a chain, which he eventually sold for millions of dollars. Metzenbaum worked as a lawyer for labor unions, and after joining the U.S. Senate in the 1970s, quickly became known as an unabashed liberal. Howard Metzenbaum of Ohio worked for such populist causes as workers' rights, food safety, and notably gun control, sponsoring the original Brady Bill. He also threw himself into the fight against the deregulation of gas and oil prices and called for tighter regulation of the insurance industry as he fought for national health insurance. Metzenbaum was a master obstructionist, perfecting the use of the filibuster to hold up pork barrel excesses and tax loopholes. It's estimated that in 1982 alone, he blocked the passage of bills that would have cost taxpayers about $10 billion. Of course, putting that in perspective, that's one month of Iraq war. Metzenbaum's style was stubborn, bombastic, and often self-righteous, said his fellow Ohio Democratic Senator John Glenn. I've worked with Howard Metzenbaum, and I've worked against Howard Metzenbaum, and it's a whole lot more pleasant to work with him. After leaving the Senate, Metzenbaum became chairman of the Consumer Federation of America, holding that position to his death. And speaking of uh, consumer advocates, let's talk, about, let's talk about some non-consumer advocates. Peter Navarro, writing in the uh, San Francisco Chronicle, uh, talked about the, the economic crisis we're now facing in America and referred to a rogues gallery of uh, people responsible for our current woes. I thought I'd mention a few of them. Uh, top of the list, former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan, who started the housing bubble with the ultra-low interest rates after 9-11. Incidentally, Mr. Greenspan is now making a fortune out on the speaking stump, uh, talking about the misery he himself helped create. Peter Navarro didn't think too much of his replacement, uh, former Princeton professor and current Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke, saying he will go down in history as a one-term chairman who single-handedly debased the dollar and oversaw the credit market equivalent of Chernobyl. Third on the list, Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, quick to pull the trigger on bailouts for Wall Street cronies such as Bear Stearns, but opposes any lifeboat for homeowners. He's the same guy who refused to allow the Treasury Department to brand China a currency manipulator. Also in the rogues gallery, Bear Stearns ex-CEO James Kane described as making a big bet on the mortgage market and fiddling around at bridge tournaments while his company burned through billions of shareholder value. J.P. Morgan Chase & Company stole the company, once worth $169 a share, for $2 a share. That was after J.P. Morgan helped the government with its bailout. 
Saw some Wall Street spokesman on on uh, on PBS on McNeil Lair the other day talking about how, uh, well, you know, uh, you shouldn't just talk about this as a bailout. You know, the government did add quite a bit of value to the company, and of course, this allowed it to be bought. And you know, it is a shame that some of that money didn't trickle down to the shareholders. But uh, you know, it, it's a good thing. Rogues Gallery included the bonus bonehead babies, former CEO Charles Prince of Citigroup and Stan O'Neill of Merrill Lynch who retire with payouts worth about $100 million or more after overseeing tens of billions of dollars in asset write-downs and credit losses. Said Navarro, they belong in jail, not on the golf course. And worthy of special mention, The Flippers, with books like Flipping Houses for Dummies, climbing up the Amazon.com charts, but offering no money-back guarantees for all the poor, hapless saps who are now left holding the foreclosure bag. In a related vein, we have the cartoon by Tom Tolles writing in the Washington Post, six panels, showing a reporter asking a CEO, so now how smart are you, Mr. Swashbuckling Capitalist? You said you deserved your $100 million a year because you were so smart, but you made a lot of crazy investments that wrecked your company and put the entire global economy at risk. And you walk away with all your money and leave a mess for others to clean up. Final panel shows the CEO turning on his heels and walking away saying, I'd say pretty smart. All right, we got about 10 minutes left, and I can either talk about uh, how police are now being armed with assault rifles or do some science, and I think we'll, we'll do some science and talk about the, the police story next week. Anyway, in terms of science, speaking about talking monkeys, as I think we just were a minute ago with some of the pronouncements coming out of Wall Street. Uh, no, actually... Some very curious science has been done by uh, some Scotland-based primatologists, Kate Arnold and Klaus Zuberbuehler, which doesn't sound very Scottish to me, but uh, they were working in Nigeria studying some putty-nosed monkeys, and, uh, and their, their results have, have scientists reworking their theory that language has evolved with only one species, that being us, Homo sapiens. Because it, it seems quite clear that these monkeys do have a language in, uh, in, you know, the proper sense of the term language. These wild primates have been caught in the act of speaking, in other words, communicating specific messages through a pattern of vocalizations. The local monkeys tended to use similar patterns of calls to warn one another of approaching predators. A specific series of hacks, they found, always indicated that a crowned eagle was flying overhead and that eagle was looking for something to eat, whereas a sequence of piao sounds indicated that a lurking leopard was nearby. When the scientists dissected the sequences of vocalizations, they found that each communication contained three key pieces of information, and the speaking monkey identified itself, the predator in question, then announced whether or not it was running away. And another study in, uh, in science done last fall notes that the language mothers use with their young is surprisingly universal, spanning not only cultures, but species. Studying female rhesus monkeys, they, uh, researchers noted that uh, in the presence of infants of their own species, the, the females switched into a special vocalization style of appreciative grunts and high-pitched nasal noises. The vocalizations themselves had a soothing quality that calms mothers and infants, which makes it more like human baby talk, said animal behaviorist Drew Rendell. In a separate study, researchers who tested English baby talk on, uh, on villagers in Ecuador found that you needn't understand a language to understand its baby talk. 
Despite never having been exposed to English, the indigenous people were able to identify English baby talk statements of approval, comfort, attention, and prohibition with an accuracy rate of 75%. Said Gregory Bryant, referred to as an evolutionary psychologist, both humans and monkeys were relying on a special language he calls motherese, in which tone, not words, does most of the communication. If we look close enough, he said, we see motherese being spoken by a wide range of species. And uh, we never got Michael Erard on, on this program. He was on a numerous talk shows a few months back talking about his book, Um, Slips, Stumbles, and Verbal Blunders and What They Mean. Noted journalist Erard, the average speaker, according to scientists, makes between 7 and 22 slips of the tongue each day and strings together an average of only 12 bona fide words before uncorking an um, an er, or some other meaning-free noise. Uh, boy, could that be true? Hmm. But curiously, these, uh, these disfluencies appear to uh, adhere to a fairly rigid set of rules. An um, for example, indicates a longer pause than an uh. Here's a part I found very odd, although a lot of people do speak with their hands. I, I, I tend to. They noted that even the best speakers suffer a surge in disinfluencies when they converse with their hands tied behind their back. It's curious that some of this hand-wringing over ums and ahs apparently uh, uh, took off with the advent of radio. And in the end, it appears that uh, Michael Erard uh, really, couldn't, really couldn't prove what the, what the significance of these ums and ers uh, were. But uh, it was argued that President Bush's infamous flubs indicate nothing about his intelligence. Argued writer Christine Keenally, the truth is no one has yet even worked out whether George W. Bush makes more verbal errors than previous presidents. <laughs> I, think, I think that's pretty much a slam dunk. Perhaps you've caught the David Letterman feature he has of great moments in presidential speeches, which generally starts off with FDR saying, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Cut to John F. Kennedy. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Juxtapose with George Bush saying things like, as I seen the foreign minister, uh, he's just here a second ago. I swear he was just here. And so on and so on. Here's a not surprising item. Americans are getting fatter. According to a report by the Trust for America's Health, a nonprofit group, 15 years ago, no state exceeded a 15% obesity rate. Today, 47 of the 50 states have obesity rates higher than 20%. Said Jim Marks of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, these numbers add up to a devastating indictment. Particularly disturbing, he said, are the soaring rates of obesity among kids. We would note a, a study done at the University of California at Davis which was touted recently, claims that uh, America's subsidy of corn and, uh, and, uh, and the free availability of cheap uh, corn sweeteners is in fact not influencing America's trend toward obesity. We find that astonishingly hard to believe, but if you had something to do with that study, why don't you send us an email at info at radioparallax.com and maybe we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Of course, one reason we have trouble losing weight uh, may be found in a study done by Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York several months back, noting that uh, we apparently get to taste sweets twice. 
Certain cells in our intestines, it was revealed, look an awful lot like the tongue's tasting cells, said researchers. These cells have chemical receptors and hormonal pathways similar to those found on taste buds. Said study author Robert Malgolsky, cells of the gut taste glucose to the same mechanism used by the taste cells of the tongue. He noted that although you won't consciously feel the sweetness moving through your gut, you might feel some of the same pleasant sensations as when a sweet snack lands on the tongue. A very rich sugar or fat-filled dessert could make you have a sense of well-being and happiness. And I think that's, uh, that's probably another slam dunk. You, uh, you eat a rich dessert, you feel good. I mean, haven't we all experienced that to some degree? All right, and let's close with, uh, with this item. March 8th issue of New Scientist magazine notes that pills are also making us fat and that psychiatric drugs are adding to our obesity epidemic. Article by Paula Kaplan, noting that while two-thirds of adults, more than 130 million people, are now considered overweight and nearly half of those are classified as obese, One culprit that's rarely being mentioned is the broad range of psychiatric drugs that can cause substantial weight gains. These include antidepressants, mood stabilizers like lithium and and valproate, and antipsychotics. It's noted that after 10 years on lithium, two-thirds of patients put on about 22 pounds. December of 06, the New York Times published an article based on internal documents from Eli Lilly indicating that it had intentionally downplayed the side effects of olanzapine, which it sells as Zyprexa. The company's data showed that one-third of patients who have taken the drug for a year gain at least 10 kilograms, or 22 pounds, while half gain at least 30 kilograms, almost 70 pounds. The article notes that recent revelations have shown that some antidepressants may work little better than placebo in most cases, which... uh, makes the potential side effects of um, medicating so many Americans with these drugs uh, more worrying than ever. These drugs certainly have their place, talking about like, uh, you know, antidepressants, certainly have a place in treating Americans who are depressed, but, uh, you know, I think they should be used in a short-term basis, and I can't tell you how many people I see in, in the course of working in urgent cares, as I do, that have been on these medications for 10 years. Your psychiatrist and your family doctor are relying on these medications far, far too much. Article noted one curiosity that, uh, that apparently last year the American Journal of Psychiatry had an article by two doctors proposing that obesity now be classified as a mental illness. I don't know. I, I, when it comes to all these, these psychiatric diagnoses, when I th- see things talking about how there's just this huge, giant surge of autism in the country, I say, well, no. There's a huge, giant surge of autism diagnoses in the country. Uh, this correspondent is not necessarily convinced that, uh, you know, that they're the same thing. And I'm sorry to say that we are now out of time. So uh, I would like to say thanks again to Bob Newman. CEO of Newman Communications. I'm sure you'll have some interesting insights as Campaign 08 continues to evolve. And we promised you William Poundstone last week for this week's show. We will instead bring you Mr. Poundstone next week. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our intern is Letty Chavez. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week with a report on New York City and Washington, D.C. 